Well, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews and chapter 13. And while you're getting there, let me express my deep appreciation to uh, the elders for this opportunity. Um, I have great respect for this pulpit, so this means quite a lot. Hebrews chapter 13. Our interest is in verse 8, but we will go ahead and read from the first verse. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 to 8. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then our text for this morning, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's just pray together. Our Heavenly Father, on this New Year's Day, we have 10,000 reasons to bless your name. We are thankful for the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the food that we eat. We're thankful for the friendships that we have, this, this body of Christ that we belong to. We thank you for the chance to face another year, uh, a testament of your patience and of your fair forbearance with us. But over and above all of these blessings, we thank you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the blood that flows through his veins. There is no other fount that we know that can cleanse us from all sin. And so, Father, we pray that you might lift your Son very high through the preaching of your word, that in being lifted high, he will draw all men to himself. Warm the cold, Break the heart, encourage the discouraged. These things we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The message that we find in our text here in Hebrews 13 verse 8, uh, the truth that Jesus Christ is always the same, the same yesterday, today, and forever, is actually not unique to verse 8 of chapter 13. This truth is actually found right at the beginning of the book of Hebrews in chapter 1 and verse 10 to 12 when the writer to the Hebrews says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be unchanged. And here it is, but you are the same and your years will have no end. So this truth that Jesus is always the same acts like like kind of bookends to the book of Hebrews. The writer opens with it and he closes with it. But I will argue 
that the truth that Jesus is always the same is not incidental to the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's, it's everything in the book of Hebrews. In fact, I will argue that it is central to the argument of the book of Hebrews. Let me, let me unpack that for you quickly. The, the writer to the Hebrews does not call this a letter. Instead, he calls it an exhortation right at the end of Hebrews and chapter 13. If you would read with me verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. So it would be more proper to call this the exhortation to the Hebrews. But why is, why is this important? It's, it's important because the word exhortation comes from the same family of words as another word that Jesus uses in the upper room in John chapter 14. You remember the context in the upper room. Jesus has just told his disciples that he is leaving them. His disciples who had just spent the last three years with him. His disciples who had left everything to follow him. Left family, left friends, been kicked out of the synagogue their reputation being slung in the mud and if you know anything about jewish culture you will know that reputation for them was everything entrusted themselves to this man who had led and guided and provided for them for three years and then after three years he turns around and says to them i'm leaving you and where i am going you cannot follow. Can you imagine how disorienting that must have felt for the disciples? I mean, what, what do you mean you are leaving us? Where, where do you expect us to go? We've left everything to follow you. And it is in response to their distress that Jesus begins to say things like, do not let your hearts be troubled. It is good that I go away because I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then I will come back so that you may be where I am. And then a little further down in chapter 14 of John's gospel, Jesus says, strictly speaking, I am not really leaving you because when I leave, I will send somebody else to come and to be with you. Somebody like me. Somebody who is another, and here's the word, comforter, counselor, helper, exhorter, to comfort you, to strengthen you in your distress. Much like the disciples, the Hebrews are themselves in distress. The difference is that whereas the disciples in the upper room are distressed by Jesus' impending departure, the Hebrews are distressed by persecution. They had been Jews and they had practiced Judaism and they had memorized the law of Moses from childhood. They took part in all the religious feasts and, and all the religious ceremonies. But then they had the gospel preached to them. And the Holy Spirit had, had sovereignly arrested their hearts and, and opened their eyes to see the truth that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. They repented of their sins, they abandoned their Judaism, and they placed faith and trust in him. It did not take long for persecution to come. 
in the beginning, they were persevering just fine in the midst of their persecution. So much so that in chapter 10 and verse 32 of the book of Hebrews, you may read it with me. The writer to the Hebrews says this, verse 32 of Hebrews chapter 10, but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. You did not give in to your struggles with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prisons and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They essentially would say, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Even if they confiscate our property, even if they take everything away, we have a better possession in glory. And yet it's one thing to endure the Christian life for a week, for a month, for six months, and the suffering is not stopping. The suffering continued, and the more it continued, they began to question whether this Christianity thing is really worth it. They had been promised that they would be rewarded for their sufferings. They, they were promised that Jesus would return soon, but this Jesus was not returning. And so they began to think to themselves, perhaps this Christianity thing is not worth it. We were not suffering like this in Judaism. Perhaps we need to return. Perhaps we need to go back. And the message of this exhortation to the Hebrews is basically this. Brethren, you cannot go back to Judaism because there is nothing to go back to. Its ceremonies, its, its covenant, its rituals, they have faded away and they have been replaced by something better by someone better, someone who does not fade away, someone who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So hold fast to Christ and, and what you have found in him and keep your eyes on him and his glory and his promises and press on. It's the message of the book of Hebrews. It's the exhortation to the Hebrews. And we need to hear this today as well. Because like the Hebrews, we are tempted often to abandon Christianity altogether, aren't we? But unlike the Hebrews, our temptation is not so much to leave Christianity to return to Judaism. We are not from Judaism. We're from the world. Our temptation is to abandon Christianity and to return to the world from which we came. I have two burdens this morning. My first burden is that we may have professing Christians present here today who are right now in the process of giving in to that temptation. You have not outright rejected the Christian faith, but you are not far from it because you have allowed yourself to slip into spiritual compromise. As you look back at your life, Christian life over the years, you, you can see yourself move from, from merely flirting with sin 
to, to wading into its dark waters and, and now you are on the verge of plunging in. You, you've become the kind of Christian who speaks of his relationship with God or her relationship with God in the past tense about how you used to be zealous in the past about how you used to lead this particular ministry, about how you used to be characterized with such zeal and such devotion to the things of God. But now, now you are a shadow of your former self. And if you are honest with yourself, this is not a happy new year for you because you know that today marks another year of continued spiritual decline. And it will not be long before you plunge in. My burden is for you. That you would see something of the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. That seeing it would revive your soul. That it would arrest your spiritual decline. That it would fill you with fresh zeal and fresh energy to resist the world and to hold fast. My second burden is for you who may be present here today and have already, in fact, apostatized. The world has proved too irresistible for you. You you present yourself as one who has discovered sound scientific argumentation for why the Christian faith is false and God does not exist when underneath it's really sin that you have fallen in love with. And it's really sin that you want to enjoy without accountability. My burden is for you too. That you would see in the pages of the scriptures a savior who is able and willing to bring you back. But my third burden is for those of you present who have entered the new year in good spiritual health. And here's my question to you. What is it that will keep you from spiritual compromise in the coming year. When, when temptation is closing in from, from every side, when, when the powers of hell are beating against your soul, what is it that will keep you standing? The New Testament gives multiple answers to that question, but here is one from the exhorter to the Hebrews. It is knowing that there is nothing to go back to. That the things in the world that so entice and fascinate you, that they are fleeting. That the pleasures of the world are not lasting pleasures. That they do not truly satisfy. They, they fade away. And that in Christ, you have something that truly satisfies. Something that does not fade away. Someone who does not fade away. Someone who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so to that end, what I want us to do in the time that we have left is fairly simple. I want us to take this text, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and basically ask an attempt to answer the question, what was Jesus Christ like yesterday? And then I want us to zero in on one aspect of what he was like yesterday in his character and then see how he has not changed. He is exactly the same today. So what was Jesus Christ like yesterday? A necessary starting point is to observe that it would seem as though the writer to the Hebrews means to draw our attention 
to the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that he is eternal or the fact that he is immortal. And yet, when, when you read the text in verse 8, you notice that he, he does not say, as we would expect him to say, if it's the fact that Jesus is eternal that he wants to draw our attention to. He does not say Jesus Christ is the same forever which is past, today, and forever which is future. Instead, he says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and then forever, which is future. Why does he do that? Why, why yesterday? Here is my suggestion. He says yesterday and not eternity past because he means to draw the attention of the Hebrews not so much to eternity past, but to the immediate past. What he describes in Hebrews 5 verse 7 as the days of Jesus' flesh, the days when he walked on this earth. There is a massive clue right here in our text which indicates that we are probably correct in concluding this. You notice again that he does not say God the Son is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now why is that significant? It's significant because God the Son was not called Jesus in eternity past. This was the name given to him at his birth. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Christ was a title signifying the office that he entered into in order to save people from their sins. In other words, the person to whom the writer to the Hebrews means to draw our attention to is not so much God the Son, but God the Son incarnate, walking on this earth in human flesh, living on this earth, the days of Jesus' flesh. So what was Jesus like yesterday when he walked this earth? Lots of answers we could give, but here is just one. Yesterday, in the days of his flesh, Jesus Christ was determined to save sinners. Yesterday, in the days of his flesh, Jesus Christ was determined to save sinners. I want us to see this from Luke and chapter 9. Please turn with me to Luke and chapter 9. Much happens in Luke and chapter 9. Jesus goes up to the mountain with Peter, John, and James. He is transfigured enters into conversations with Moses and with Elijah. He comes down from the mountain. He was a boy with an unclean spirit. He foretells his death. An argument arises among his disciples about who is the greatest. And then he enters into a Samaritan village. And I want us to pick it up from verse 51. Listen to what Luke says in verse 51 of Luke and chapter 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, and here's the phrase I'm interested in, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. What, what does it mean to set your face towards something? Well, it means that you are determined to do something, doesn't it? And so if you are in secondary school, or you are in university, 
If you say that you have set your face towards your exams, you mean that you have resolved, you are determined to pass the exams which are coming, and you will do whatever it takes to clear them. And so if you are in a, in a secret relationship that nobody knows about, and yet you are very much aware that it has been a distraction, you put it aside. If you have been sleeping for four hours at night, you decide to double the hours. You are making sacrifices. You are doing whatever it takes to clear the exams which are coming. You have set your face to the exams. Or when we speak in terms of a, a man setting his face to a woman, what we mean is that he has become determined to win her heart. I know of a of a, of a man, he's a former member of Kabota Baptist Church, so you do not have to try to figure out who I'm talking about. It was a very long time ago, and he, he left quite a while ago as well. Uh, he was interested in the same woman as a fellow brother in the Lord and, and fellow church member. Uh, very much interested. They, they both felt as though the woman was, was the love of their lives. Um, and they, they, they set their face towards this woman. Uh, but, the, but the brother I am talking about uh, went to his fellow church member and said, Mona, uh, this is not the jungle. Uh, we are not animals. Uh, we, we cannot say to each other, uh, uh, every man for himself but God for us all, and may the best man win. And besides, we believe in, in the sovereignty of God in all things. So if God has predestined that she will end up with you, there is nothing that I can do to make that not happen. And if God has predestined that I will end up with her, even if you start off and engage her, it just will not work out. And I will end up with her. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to have your turn. You pursue her. You try to win her heart. And if you get married, have kids, and have a long and prosperous marriage, I will join you in giving thanks to the Lord. But if it does not work out, you return to me and tell me that I can have my goal. The brother readily agreed. I mean, who would, who would refuse such a thing? He went, he pursued her, they started courting, but then they had some uh, difficulties in their relationship. They broke up, and he came as he had bound himself to, and he told him, brother, uh, she's all yours. And, and he was right, because... She, he engaged her, they got married, and they have many children uh, right now. Now, here's some, some free advice for somebody who has been married for two weeks. It doesn't always work out like that. And that is why most men would not agree to such an arrangement. When they set their face towards a woman, they are determining in their hearts that they will win their heart and nobody, not even a brother in the Lord, is going to stand in the way of them winning their prize. So when Luke says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, this is what it means, that Jesus was determined that he had made a holy resolution to go to Jerusalem. In fact, from this point onwards in, in Luke chapter 9, uh, Luke is at pains to repeatedly remind us 
of Jesus' singular focus to get to Jerusalem. Everything he does from this point, everything he says, everything he teaches, he teaches with a view to going to Jerusalem. Let me show you this in a few places. Verse 52 of Luke chapter 9, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Chapter 13 and verse 22. Chapter 13 and verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Not passing through towns and villages and teaching aimlessly. No. Passing through towns and villages and teaching with one goal, with one mission, to ultimately end up in Jerusalem. Chapter 17 and verse 11. Luke 17 and verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Luke 19, verse 11. Luke 19, verse 11. And as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Why? Because he was near to Jerusalem. And finally, uh, chapter 19 and verse 28. Chapter 19 and verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Why these repeated reminders that, that, that the man of Galilee who you see walking these streets and performing these miracles and teaching his teachings is not doing all of these things aimlessly. He is doing all of these things with one goal to ultimately end up in Jerusalem. Everything he says, everywhere he goes, everything he does, he does to get to Jerusalem. And yet, brethren, we know that it wasn't that he determined to go to Jerusalem for the sake of going to Jerusalem, was it? He determined to go to Jerusalem because of what was going to happen in Jerusalem. And what was going to happen in Jerusalem is that he was going to die for the sins of the world. So Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem was Jesus setting his face to die. It was Jesus determined to save sinners from their sins. This event that was going to transpire in Jerusalem actually became the the preoccupation of his mind. He, he, he could not get it off his heart. Listen to what he says in, in chapter 12 and verse 49, still in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 12 and verse 49. Luke 12, 49 and 50. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. Now listen to this. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now when he's speaking here about a baptism, he doesn't mean water baptism. He's talking about the wrath of God. He knows that in Jerusalem, the wrath of God, which at present 
is against all who are ungodly and unrighteous was going to wash over his soul. That's the baptism that he is talking about. I have a baptism, he says, to be baptized with. And listen to his reaction to that baptism. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. There is no peace in his spirit until he gets to Jerusalem and he suffers under the wrath of God. Chapter 13 and verse 33. We begin from verse 31. Luke 13 verse 31. At that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today to Jerusalem and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In other words, not even the threat of being killed by Herod will keep me from getting to Jerusalem to die for sinners. I must go to Jerusalem and there I must die and nothing, not even Herod, will stand in my way. Chapter 18 and verse 31, this is our last reference, 18 and verse 31, the third time that Jesus prophesies to his disciples verse 31 and taking the 12 he said to them see we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished in Jerusalem for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. All of these things will take place in Jerusalem, and that is where I am going. What is my point? It is that Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem was Jesus setting his face to go and die. It was Jesus saying to himself, I have come to save sinners and I am going to save them. And nothing, nothing is going to stand in my way. And even when he gets to, to Gethsemane and, and the shadow of Calvary is, is looming large, he is merely hours away from drinking from the cup of the wrath of God. He knows what a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God because he is the living God come incarnate and everything in his humanity shrinks under the prospect. And remember what he says, he says, Father, if there is any other way for me to save sinners that does not involve me having to go through your wrath, let's make it happen. We know the answer. There was no other way. And so he says to himself, if this is what it will take to save sinners, I'll do it. 
And so he goes to Calvary. He is nailed to the cross. The wrath of Almighty God against sinners is poured over his soul. He exhausts it. And then he cries, it is finished. I have accomplished what I set my face to do. What was Jesus Christ like yesterday? He was determined to save sinners. Remarkably, the writer to the Hebrews tells us in our text that this is what Jesus is like today. He is still determined to save sinners. If anything, he is even more determined than ever to save sinners because he has already died. And he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And there he is seeing to it that he has the fullness of the reward for which he died. He has no interest in letting his blood go to waste. Yesterday he set his face to go to Jerusalem to die for sinners. Today he is setting his face to bringing them home. Not a single drop of blood from Calvary will go to waste. And he himself will see to it. This is huge, brethren. Especially for those of us who are, who are struggling with sin. Either living in spiritual compromise, as I said earlier, or on the verge of spiritual compromise. Because it means that the Savior that is offered to us in the Gospel is not a reluctant savior. He is not a savior that has been co-opted into a rescue mission that he has nothing, he knows nothing about against his will. No. He himself made a holy resolution to provide for sinners the grace and the mercy that they need to save them from their sins. And he has not changed. It means that even today, Jesus Christ can raise fallen Christians. He can. Even today, he can renew lost zeal. He can revive slothful spirits. He can break hard hearts. He can strengthen weak faith. All of these things, in fact, for all in such states who come to him, he is, in fact, determined to do because he has made again a holy resolution to be merciful and gracious to all who come to him in faith if you are still not convinced of Jesus's determination to save all who come to him in faith perhaps you might be helped by a little book written by John Bunyan John Bunyan who most of you will know was a Baptist preacher in the, in the 17th century. He's most famous for writing The Pilgrim's Progress, but that's the, not the only book that he wrote. He, he wrote many books, and one of his many books is a little book called The Jerusalem Sinner Saved. The Jerusalem Sinner Saved. And in that book, uh, Banyan says that in his estimate, there have not been any worse sinners in the history of the world than the Jerusalem sinners, uh, those who were alive at the time when the Lord Jesus Christ walked on this earth. They saw him perform the miracles that he performed. They heard his teaching, and yet they did not receive him. They rejected him. 
They crucified him. And Banyan says, these are the worst sinners, the Jerusalem sinners. And yet, when Jesus dies and rises from the grave, and he is commissioning his disciples, what does he tell his disciples? He tells them, go into the world and extend the message of the free pardon of all sinners and start in Jerusalem with the very ones who crucified me. And Banyan knows that Jesus has not changed. And so his reasoning is that if Jesus Christ can pardon the Jerusalem sinner, even the Jerusalem sinner who crucified him, then Jesus Christ can pardon you. I do not know your spiritual condition on the 1st of January 2023, but I do not need to because I know the Christ of Scripture. And whereas your spiritual condition waxes and wanes with the passing of the years, his determination to save you should you come to him in repentance and faith does not. It doesn't. So come to him. If you have never come to him for the first time, come to him. If you did come to him but your zeal, your spiritual energies, your devotion to him has waned, come to him. If you came to him and turned your back on him and his church and his brethren, come to him. And you will find him to be not only ready and willing to forgive but determined to do so. But you must come to him. So what was Jesus like yesterday? He was determined to save sinners. And he still is. I pray this encourages you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the brief moments that we have spent considering something of the Lord Jesus Christ and his character. Uh, You alone search the hearts of men. You alone know the true spiritual condition of everyone present this morning. You know those who are ready to go hard for you this year. But you also know those who have absolutely no spiritual energy this year. You know how they have grown cold. You know how their zeal has waned. And you know how they face the prospect of another year having to slug it out in your church. To act like hypocrites. To work hard to conceal their sin. Show them that when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, they have no reason to pretend. They have no reason to hide their sin. They have no reason to fear his condemnation. That he is ready and willing to revive them should they come to him in repentance and faith. And so, Lord, we ask that you would achieve this in them by your spirit, through your word. We ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen.